Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 31. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. Due to scheduling conflicts this week, Scott and I were unable to record an episode, so we're pleased to air a pre-recorded interview with Sid Jatya, VP of Digital at Under Armour. The interview was recorded on Monday, May 16th, 2016. So this week we have a special treat. We have a guest on the Jason and Scott show. I'd like to welcome to the show Sid Jatta from Under Armour. Sid, you are the VP of digital there. And we should fully disclose to the listeners that you and I know each other well. We used to be coworkers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like that you called me a special treat. So <laughs> that, that itself is uh, very exciting. I'm, I'm very motivated to say good things about you in, uh, in, uh, Return back, but yeah. So um, it's been about I think sixteen months or so working at Under Armour. Um, spent too much time with uh, Jason before this, uh, but working at Under Armour, you know, it's um, you know we'd go out on pitches together, we'd uh, sell the story to uh, our friends on the retail side, and um, I was always excited to just see like what happens on the other side. What happens after we pitch the story? We build some stuff. What happens when you have to operationalize it? When you have to run it as a true business? So, so the biggest reason for my move was really partly yes, because the brand is phenomenal. Uh, it's absolutely phenomenal because you know one of the things I talk about is like it's the brands which make sense, not the retailers. Right? Retailers will die. Brands will never die. So that power of the brand is one big reason which drew me to going to Under Armour. The second was just owning a business and having all the levers to play with to see how do you engage customers, how do you not only build something great for consumers, but then also have a, a, a profitability center for, for the company. And you know, on the agency side, yeah, sure, you have some levers at play, but it was just uh, sort of expanding my toolkit a bit to to see what I can do further. Yeah, and uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but one of the downsides in an agency is you can be very involved in the beginning of a, a project or a strategy, but very often you don't get to see it completely through, and you don't, you're not necessarily there to achieve the results at the end, positive or negative. So I imagine, or I certainly hope one of the fun things for you now is you you get to live through the whole life cycle of projects a little bit more than you sometimes do at yeah, an agency. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I would say is coming on the other side of the fence, the little details matter so much. And I'm not saying that on the agency side, we never used to care about details, but we cared about details for as much we knew we had to care about. But there was so much more beyond what we knew about which we had to care about. And those little details can be so exhausting sometimes. Um, so I think operationalizing a product, standing up a product, uh, acquiring audiences for launching the product, building a good, rich acquisition uh, strategy, and then building a model which starts to pay dividends over time. I mean, all of that, it's step by step, but it's extremely exciting for us. I mean, obviously, 
in terms of my team, uh, you know, we're building a few things out, which we're going to go live with in the next uh, few weeks or, or maybe less than a month. But they are like fully operated businesses. Uh, and uh, seeing the whole holistic nature, I'm extremely excited to see how, how we fare there. Yeah, I want to explore that more. It is funny because like when we hire people at agency, you really strive to hire people that have client side experience exactly because they'll be more sensitive to all those nuances and details that are kind of easy to forget about when you're not going to own the project. The bummer of that is it's sometimes really hard to hire someone that's exclusively worked for a great brand and been a client their whole life. It can be a culture shock to come to an agency and, you know, suddenly you have to sell yourself a little bit more. You maybe don't, you know, people aren't necessarily as friendly to you by default. You have to sort of earn it. And conversely, I'm imagining, I haven't done this, so I'm, I'm asking you, I'm imagining it's much easier to transition from an agency to a brand <laughs> because you were obviously very successful at selling yourself and you, you were a very con- successful consultant at Razorfish, but I'm assuming it's fun to have all the, the vendors and partners now work hard to earn your attention. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, any environment you go from one environment to other, like there's always learning, there's always adjustment. Um, you're not going to be great at it when you get there. Uh, so I think whether it's agency to client side or, or vice versa, it remains the same. I think I would say uh, Under Armour has a little bit of a agency side built in. So if, if you think about, for example, our connected fitness business, right? 160 million people on four of our apps, we have literally a media network on there. Not even literally, it's a true media network, right? Where other brands are are uh, running media, buying ad space. So large uh, number of people who sit in the Austin office actually are former agency folks who have worked in media. Media sales, media optimization, media performance targeting, all of that, right? So it, it's Austin office especially, I would say, is a very interesting blend where we have part agency culture, part product culture, part business culture. Uh, so that's sort of been a nice place for me to ease into a total client-side environment. And then you go to Baltimore, uh, that's a phenomenal place, right? Uh, from a city perspective, obviously, there's a lot of pride in the company claiming Baltimore as its home, home turf. But even from just the personality of people in Baltimore who are working there, that's the largest employer in town or even greater Baltimore. So there's this sense of like, this is a brand I want to work for. And especially for people who have grown up in the, that mid East corridor, they love, and they grow up wanting to work for, for Under Armour, at least in the last five years, I would say millennials, right? People who have probably graduated from school from 2009, 2010 onwards, everybody who's graduating at UMCP, or any of the other colleges in Bethesda, in D.C., uh, Philadelphia area, all of them are like, Under Armour is going to be my employer. So you see these, you go to the campus and you see that energy in that young entrepreneuring crowd. It's kind of almost like uh, incestually, it carries forward into you. Uh, and then you look at the athletes, athlete assets we have, the sports assets, uh, Great, great, big photography everywhere. And the success stories of, you know, we call it the year of the champions last year, which is Steph Curry winning the MVP, Jordan Spieth winning the Masters, uh, Misty winning uh, the first representation at um, uh, the ballet. 
the American Ballet School, and um, then uh, Lindsey Vaughn winning the World Championship, uh, Brian ha- Brian Harper winning the MVP in MLB. So, like, if you think across the board, like, when does a brand go through a time where every MVP in every sport is from an underdog brand? That can only be a, a, a matter of chance, coincidence, fortune. And we were blessed with that 20 year of 2015. So the point I was making is that Austin has its own vibe and Baltimore has its own vibe and they're not in conflict. And it's amazing to go and be part of these two distinct cultures and live that brand. Yep. And j- just to be clear for the listeners, Baltimore is the corporate HQ and where the founder, Kevin Plank, is started the business, right? And then Austin is a digital hub for you? Yeah, Connected Fitness, uh, I mean, uh, it was started off from the acquisition of Map My Fitness back in 2014 or 2013. But uh, that started to become the incubation ground for talent in digital because it's obviously very much easier to get ta- digital talent in Austin than Baltimore. So we started uh, fe- uh, you know, just fostering talent there, and uh, now it's become the, the headquarters for digital. Yep. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm imagining one of the nice things about the brand going so well and having all that success on the athlete side, for example, is one of the challenges that's like endemic in our industry is no, none of us can hire all the talent we need, right? And there's a constrained commodity of great digital talent. And I'm imagining you're one of the annoying brands that people want to work for. So you guys probably win more often than you lose when you're competing for those college students or proven digital folks. Is that true? Or Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's, and this is just my hypothesis, it's probably not like there's no scientific evidence here, but a kid who, you know, goes to, I don't know, Berkeley and is surrounded by his or her parents working in the Valley, the VC environment there, all he probably thinks about is Facebook, Google, Netflix, right? Are we going to change those guys? Perhaps not all of them, but we have MyFitnessPal in San Francisco. And if they are at least in consideration around lifestyle change uh, and they believe in that goal, I think they'll be drawn to us as, as an employer. Other than the Valley, I would say Austin, we're definitely part of the conversation when it comes down to digital tech. Uh, because if you think about Facebook and Google, they have big presence there, or even Apple for that matter, but it's a very ad sales, sales, business to business kind of stuff. No direct to consumer uh, businesses are there, right, in terms of uh, the big brands. So when Under Armour's right in town, in front of the river, in a mixed use settlement, uh, you know, with people using kettlebells to work out outside in the lawn, like that is a lifestyle for people who associate with that lifestyle. They're extremely attracted to, and they understand the purpose we have. We are behind, so it's a, it's a nice draw. Baltimore, as I explained, being the largest employer, uh, and and when you are into sports, uh, if you even have remote affinity to sports, you tend to be gravitated towards that. Very cool. And I, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. But before we do that, listeners are always really interested to know how you started your career that led here. And so I know in your case, you started with a very strong design background and you you went to a fancy design school, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, you know, I was always um, kind of stuck. Like, should I do design? Should I do business? In fact, even when I graduated out of high school, I went to uh, economics school for five days because I was like, I didn't want to do economics. I feel like I can really do well in business. 
But then um, my dad was uh, running a big architectural firm in India, and he's like kind of gave me the guilt, saying, "What am I have been doing? You know, wasting all my years trying to build this stuff out." And I was just like, "Architecture is cool too," and I actually absolutely love architecture and design. So I ended up going to school for architecture. But I always have this sort of dichotomy at play in my head, which is like, "Do I want to be a business owner? Do I want to be a design practitioner?" And I I have never still still found an answer for either. I feel like I want to be both, um, and that was the reason I went to architecture school. And architecture, as as of all of you guys understand, right? It's a very engineering driven. Like you gotta have uh, uh, awareness for engineering, appreciation for engineering, but you gotta have a really like you know great um, appreciation for design as well. So that was there, and then I went to school uh, at Parsons, uh, did my masters in design and technology. Again, stuck in the between design and technology, and that was exactly the reason I chose the program because it was stuck in the middle. And was that a relatively new program at Parsons yeah. at that point? Because they haven't had the technology component of that for that long, right? Right. So this was like late '90s, dot uh, com revolution, all of that stuff. So relatively new program. It was like ITP and NYU was relatively well known. And then this was the second program after that. So I did that, and then uh, graduating after that, I went to Electronic Arts, the video game company, every kid's dream, working on Madden football and NCAA football. Um, and you know, spent a few years, four or five years there, and again doing again a design technologist kind of a role. And then at Razorfish, I started up uh, in user experience. Um, for a few years, working through the user experience, uh, uh, and then finally had a lot of passion and you can say from chance I ended up working a lot on retail but I found that you know I am very much driven around a direct to consumer culture and that was like retail was a great vertical which paid homage to the direct to consumer culture so whether it was JC Penney whether it was Express whether it was a variety of brands like Target and everything uh, which I got engaged in, I was fortunate enough to be part of uh, you know, those engagements, I, I developed a strong fascination for retail. Um, and uh, that itself uh, you know, drove uh, my engagement at Under Armour, where my former um, client and also a friend, Jason LaRose, who uh, ran global e-commerce at Express, uh, introduced me at Under Armour, and he was like, this is a brand I think is a different brand than any other brand. And I, I promise not to sell you on this, but you got to come out and see and meet the people who you think you'll work with. And you can make a determination if this is brand is any different than any other brand. And, and honestly, like I would give him credit because the way he framed it, like I was like, the guy can't be hoaxing this thing. Like this gotta be some sense of reality around what he's saying. And, had a chance to go and meet a few people and like just the energy at the campus, as I was saying in the Baltimore campus is insane. Like it's, it's very revealing. It's very, um, I would say, um, you know, it's just great. So anyways, I mean, I think loved Razor Fish. I think I still respect Razor Fish uh, for, Thanks, for man. the time. <laughs> uh, but you know, it was time to like go and try out something new. I was there for 10 years and like owning a business was always something uh, I wanted to do kind of play the whole yeah. business and design together. Um, so Yeah, no, that was a great run at Razorfish. And it is funny, I feel like during your tenure, businesses are always evolving, but like one very clear evolution is in the early days, it seemed like they really wanted to pigeonhole everyone into a specific discipline, right? So you were 
a creative guy, which meant you weren't a business guy or a tech guy. And I think largely driven by the nature of these projects we all work on now and the client expectations, the people that are most successful on the client side and at agencies are what I call these T-shaped employees that you can go super deep in one discipline, which is the kind of the stock of the T, but you also have a understanding and appreciation for a broad range of the disciplines that it takes to create that. And so I feel like whether you were overtly architecting that or that's just the path you took, it, it makes perfect sense that you always had an interest in multiple disciplines. I'm guessing as you progressed at Razorfish, you got to leverage more of that. And now you're in a role where where I suspect you would need to be a T-shaped employee to be successful. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, even you know outside clients or even brands, I would say, even if you look at uh, the private equity space or the VC space and you look at the kind of talent these guys are trying to get for other brands, they're trying to find talent which has design sensibility, even at executive uh, business-led roles. Because they've all understood, like whether it's companies in the Valley, whether it's startups, all the founders haven't been just MBA grads. They came out either from a product design background or they were an account manager. So the world of startups and the co-founders and the, the profile class of those co-founders have, has made a determination that, you know, for a successful person, you need to make good decisions. I mean, that's the most important thing, right? If you can make good decisions, then you can figure out the rest. And it's actually funny at Under Armour, that's really, really true because, our CMO, acting CMO right now, Kip Fuchs, he was uh, KP's, uh, or Kevin Plank, who's our CEO, he was his longtime buddy, and he was the first employee when they started the company in the basement. And now Kip has played the chief merchandising officer, he has played the chief marketing officer, he has played the chief operations officer, he has led footwear, he has led apparel, and now he's back doing the chief marketing officer. Wow. So the point they always say is like, if you can make great decisions, you can be a great leader. Sure. And I'm sort of fo- trying to follow that, <laughs> you know, uh, sensibility, which I, I truly believe that, you know, if you have the aptitude to make good decisions and you have great people to help you make those great decisions, hopefully you can triangulate the rest. Nice. Well, let's transition a little bit and talk about what you're doing today at Under Armour. Can you kind of paint us a picture what your scope is, what kind of projects you work on, and how you spend your day? Yeah, so I, I lead um, the the monetization piece overall in Connected Fitness. So just to give you guys the background, obviously, most of you probably know, um, we acquired three companies uh, in the span of last 18 to 24 months, right? And the total tag on those companies was roughly $750 million, uh, plus minus. I don't remember the exact number. So for seven, spending $750 million for a company who was making roughly $4 billion last year, that is a serious investment. And for you to justify when you are a public limited company to make that kind of investment, you got to really be very clear around the strategic value of that those uh, acquisitions. So we've been very clear, right? Like, those, com- those companies we acquired for one good reason. It's because it's a great consumer base for us. They're people who are working out. They're believing in pursuing their goals through an active lifestyle. 
And that's the Under Armour audience, right? And whether it's a data or insights play or it's a monetization play, it's both. Uh, my role is focused on the selling shirts and shoes to those uh, individuals. And and one of the things, um, you know, I'll talk a little bit about at my uh, my talk at Shop Talk tomorrow is that uh, selling shirts and shoes to these individuals on connected fitness platforms is not about jamming a commerce store within these platforms. So it's like an entire monetization strategy, which is really purpose-built to the goals of the platform, whether you're trying to lose weight on MyFitnessPal, whether you're trying to run faster and map MyFitness, or you're trying to look at Total Health Dashboard on record. Ultimately, what are, how are products contextualized to you which are purpose-built to help you get closer to your goals. So that's sort of the holy grail. What's interesting is we have extremely aggressive goals on that, but it's also an interesting problem to solve because there's nothing to copy. Like I can't say, look at that brand. They did really well. Let's copy that. Let's get inspired by that. Like there's not a single brand where we can do it. So to me, and that's one of the biggest reasons I took that opportunity is like it's an uncharted territory. I'm like, how do, you, do, how do I bring my expertise on e-commerce into a world of e-commerce which is not on a traditional domain? And that's what distributed commerce is. That's why I'm talking about it. That's why I was like, Zia, we need to talk about distributed commerce. It's a big, big topic, you know, uh, who's the head of content for Shop Talk. Um, so that's sort of one big part of my role. The other big part is integrated retail from an omni-channel perspective. So globally, how do we drive that singular customer experience across all channels? Um, so the part of it is uh, retail tech, right? How do we build the right infrastructure in stores? Second is how do we operationalize that right structures? Because the traditional roles in stores are are not digital tech, right? They are like my operations manager. They're my sales associates who are manning the front front of the office, right? They are people who are uh, receiving and planning and replanning and allocations and all of that stuff, right? So. It's like thinking of that operational model and figuring out, like, are there other ways to look at how to support digital tech? Uh, and then finally, building great front-end experiences, whether it's about endless aisle or clienteling in the store, whether it's about dynamic targeting and personalization and segmentation within the store. So somebody who's working on Map My Fitness and has had a personal best last night and he walks into the store, how does the associate come in, give you a high five and say, man, you crushed it last night? Like imagine that kind of an experience, like it sounds so simplistic and it sounds so amazing, but it's so challenging to do, even though we can say oh, so many vendors, like you know, literally five vendors reach out a day and say, are you trying to build a single view of your customers? We can connect all this data store and get you like, yeah, and you probably can, but do you think my data is at a good place where I can, you know, give it to you in a clean state? No. So, so I think, um, that's where, like, so I'm doing a few things. Obviously, the digital world, as you can imagine, is building this omni-channel experience. But building omni-channel experience is just the macro-level job overview. The micro-level is make some money from a monetization perspective, build integrated retail. And then also my team is standing up newer business models altogether, which are running independent altogether as a separate P&L. So, so... I can't talk much more about what that business model is because that's going to go live in the next, you know, four to six weeks. But uh, that's an extremely exciting proposition as well. Very cool. So that triggered a couple of questions in my mind. When you talk about monetization, 
Is that predominantly, hey, let's have great interactions with the brand, get people to love the brand, and then monetization will be, that means they're always going to select our shirts and our shoes? Is that, I'm assuming that's the primary monetization channel, but like, do you guys ever have debates about, hey, here's some value-added features to our app, maybe we should try to get some revenue for those and media yeah. and those kinds of things? So we have, we have two, two kinds of monetization. One is the services-based revenue which is a gated experience, premium experience in our apps, right, which exists today. The second kind of monetization is the shirts and shoes type. That is the more uncharted territory. The premium stuff, I think uh, it is still, it's in infancy. I think we, we feel like there's a great runway to premium in terms of making that business like fivefold. So, but that's a little bit more like known, like I can create a value add for my customer or my user, figure out what features go behind the paywall, behind above front of the paywall. But I think we want to like, flip the whole thing over its head is like, it's not about creating just a premium experience behind a paywall. It's about building this engagement model, which is more premium than others. Right. And a, an engagement model is more than just features. Are there value add to a brand, other brand, like, you know, free shipping. Yeah. And I'm, and I don't want to disclose my full strategy here, but like the point being there is an intense ecosystem which could be a value add to a consumer. And to me, a premium is not about premium features. It's about premium value add. Like you are more important to me as a customer. How do I give you the best experience for Under Armour? Mm. Um, and then your second question was, is it more about indirect attribution around like, you know, if you do the right things for the brand, then it, I think that is the good right way to look at it. But I, I'll tell you in full honestly, honesty, we're not let off the hook just based on indirect attribution. <laughs> uh, like we got to make some real money as well. So we, we have direct uh, click, last click revenue stuff. And then we have indirect attribution yep. as well. I mean, you know, we drive traffic to our dot com uh, through last click stuff and we are seeing healthy conversion. We're seeing it, you know, uh, become almost three to four, four times better than last year. That tells us the marketing we're doing to those connected fitness communities is working. The tenure and the awareness and the purchase intent, all of that is starting to build up and, and we're seeing some good positive momentum there. Yep. And perfectly fine if you're not able to share, but I'd be curious, like everyone's theory is, man, if we get more engagement and we get these people to consume more of our content and premium experiences, they'll spend more. You're in the unique position that you have pretty big ecosystem of known users that do consume your content. Is that what you do see? Are those customers more, do they buy more shirts and shoes and they're overall more valuable than the anonymous customer that? Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the LTV thing and I don't think anybody's cracked the LTV model properly. I mean, I'm sure every brand has tried to attack it and we have our LTV model. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that hypothesis is absolutely true. I think we're not trying to invalidate that hypothesis. We're trying to figure out how do we quantify that hypothesis that somebody who's engaged on connected fitness community ends up being a more valuable customer for Under Armour. Like, I think that's absolutely true. There's no denying. And we have enough math which shows that the more you work out on the platform, the, the bigger spend you have towards active wear, right? Like some of those uh, relationships are pretty direct. Um, it doesn't require a big data scientists to figure that out, but we want to figure out even beyond, right? For somebody who gets exposed to connected fitness and the Under Armour logo while he's working out in the app, but then two and a half months later goes into a Under Armour store and is more keen to buy an Under Armour product, 
that's a long-term indirect attribution piece. And I think that's where we just want to be careful that we don't start to snowball this whole thing into be, oh, this is amazing. And look at, you know, what a killer thing we're making here. But we want to be very like direct and clear about the, how, how the business is really being uh, supported by Connected Fitness. Yep. So two other things that came to mind while we were talking, you mentioned part of your responsibility is that digital in-store. And obviously on the show, we're, we're big fans of digital in-store because at a high level, still where 90% of the money is spent. And, you know, all these consumers have these elevated expectations for this great digital experience. Most brick-and-mortar stores don't deliver on those expectations yet. You're in a unique position because you guys own some of your stores, so you have a direct-to-consumer play, and, of course, your product sold in a lot of your wholesale partners' channels. So do you have to solve digital for just the, the stores you own, or do you guys try to create solutions that your wholesale partners can use, and do you think about them differently, or is it the same? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. I think um, direct-to-consumer, uh, we always feel, will be your best experience with the brand, right? And it's no different than us than any other brand. Sure. Like The, the whole reason for direct-to-consumer exists is you can create that Zenith experience for your customers. Uh, that being said, 65% of our business is through wholesale. It's through Dick's. It's through... Hopefully not Sports Authority anymore. I'm saying well-known before and less known now. Sports Authority, Cabela's, um, Macy's. Uh, you know, we're going into a lot of the other big distribution uh, play with some of the other department stores as well. So that being said, we can't discredit that channel. Right. Uh, so we, we work with some of our strategic partners to build some in-store digital stuff for them. Um, you know, do we do enough? I mean, I think every brand is challenged with resource and time, but uh, we absolutely have that top of mind and, and we're working through it. I don't know if you guys have seen the Armory at Champs. So the Champs is uh, another reseller and, you know, we've we've come out with this concept, the Armory. Yep. And it's, a, again, a, a premium experience uh, within within the Champs yep. brand. And that's like a shop and shop, right? It's a shop and shop, exactly. So again, select ones and Dick's you'll see, uh, as you see now, and you'll see more and more in decks that the Under Armour presence is becoming uh, quite crisp. Uh, and I think we want it to become better and better as we go over time. And then Chicago direct-to-consumer store is, is my favorite, right? Like, imagine like on Magmile, 40,000 square feet, right across Apple. And you see everybody who's working there is so happy. Like, it's not even <laughs> because it's a great store. I think the people working there are amazing. Like, the talent we managed to hire there. They're firm believers of the brand. They're firm believers of the lifestyle. So you kind of feel the difference when you go and experience that store. Yep. And that, I don't know what your deals are with like champs, but often shopping shops, that's one of the places you have to compromise because often you get to build that environment, but the employees are still the retailer's employees, which may not have the same brand affinity and you may not might not have been hired for the same attributes that you guys hire for when you're hiring someone for your own store. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always going to be the challenge. And I think you can put in some training programs here and there. But the reality is, you know, like he may be manning the Under Armour booth today and then his manager tells him like, hey, six days later, we got to do the Nike booth. And so be it, you know. Sure. I wanted to go back to another thing you mentioned with distributed commerce. Distributed commerce is one of those words that probably means slightly different things to different people. At the moment... All the buy buttons are super buzzy, right? So, hey, you can buy directly from Google and bypass going to an e-commerce site. And, you know, there's a lot of at least pilot experiments in all the social platforms right now. I guess two-part question, 
do you guys see that as being very compelling? And are you thinking about those experiences? And then I guess part two, because you do have uh, your own digital platform outside of e-commerce with these lifestyle products, are you looking for ways to integrate the commerce into those experiences more? And maybe you never send someone to underarmor.com to buy that shirt because they get auto replenishment from record or whatever. Yeah. And so the first part, you know, how we see distributed commerce and whether pervasive buy buttons are sort of the future of our strategy. I think buy buttons are just enabling transactions. And to me, and I, you know, sort of quote Ron Johnson from this morning around personal commerce, um, the enjoy piece he's talking about. And I kind of believe the same way that commerce is a subordinate to engagement, right? Like commerce doesn't exist for the sakes of commerce. Commerce see, is, exists because I want the product. How do you create desire? If I don't have desire, then sure, you made the seamless transaction great. But if I don't care about the product, then it's, it's only so good. So just the point I'm making is distributed commerce to me is a lot about building engagement platforms outside traditional domains versus enabling seamless transaction. That being said, that needs to be as well. Like sure. you need seamless transactions. But to me, like, and my, I'll, I'll keep harping on the connected fitness platforms. Like I can put a buy button today. That's not going to solve my problem. Sure. Like the guy is like sweating in the gym. The last thing he wants to do is click buy button because he can. But how do I engage with him while he's in the gym or he, he's in the lean back moment between the gym and the bus and the home? Or, you know, like I know his uh, workout patterns and I know like to your point, replenishment patterns. Like there's so many other ways to create engagement which is not about immediacy and transaction, but it's about understanding of the consumer. A slight nuance, I think for the differentiated parts of commerce, that's absolutely true, right? And there probably is a subset of commerce that's the sort of uh, boring commodity replenishment, right? And it, not every consumer wants an experience with their toilet paper manufacturer per se. So I, I, in my mind, I can see there's some some of those commodity things where it's just about reducing friction and make me not have to think about it. And then there are these discretionary purchases or purchases that you, you know, that you somehow feel like reflect on you where that experience becomes really yeah, important. And, and like, just to, just to clarify where I was going with that is I'm not saying like you got to create a deep experience to do commerce. What I'm saying is engagement can be extremely shallow, but engagement means I understand you I'm going to give you what you want or, or give you context of what you should get. So in a toilet paper scenario, if I put a toilet paper buy button in the middle of a fitness platform, it's still as good or as bad. Sure. But if I tell you, hey, you tend to go to the toilet after you work out and you might be running out of the toilet paper in your toilet based on the pattern of understanding I have, that's a different context. And a buy button there with that piece of information is so much more powerful. So that's where I'm going with engagement. It's like context is the king. You know, Context what drives immediacy and purchase intent. 
and the buy button immediacy is needed, but it's needed in in consideration of the context. Sure. As you're talking, I'm suddenly realizing there's going to be some amazing cross promotion with you and Dollar Shave Club. Because <laughs> yeah. if you if you heard Michael Dubin this morning, he he's talking about uh, the, the, the the poopy wipes, the the butt wipes exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think his his amazing quote was, "When your butt smells great, amazing things can happen." Yeah. <laughs> Good tagline, if nothing else. Very fascinating. I think. For all of us, you're one of the fun brands to watch because, to your point, none of us are great at – nobody has clean data yet. Nobody's figured out how to seamlessly give everyone the perfect contents, even though, in theory, we should all know everything we need to know about the consumer. It just, it's, it just turns out to be super hard to put all that data together and act on it in those micro moments that the consumer wants us to, but it seems like – you're going to have an easier time doing that at Under Armour than other places. So I look at a lot of our clients, and most of their shoppers are anonymous. They never authenticate themselves to you. They're mostly on the web. Most mobile apps aren't very sticky, and they don't get engagement. And I look at a bunch of those traditional problems, and I go, man, Under Armour has a bunch of customers that don't just engage with them six times a year to buy T-shirts. They engage with them every day to update their nutrition or their training program and those are mostly authenticated users. So you at least have that access to that data in the vault somewhere. So my hypothesis is that you should be one of the brands that's paying off on all that personalization and getting that context right sooner than a, a CPG would, for example, yeah, or something no, like that. I, absolutely. I, I hope so too. And that's what keeps us excited, but that also puts the pressure for us to better get our shit together and get it done. Right. Exactly. Because we're so situated for the opportunity. Uh, but that being said, the reality of technology, all of us know technology is the biggest boon. It's the biggest devil. <laughs> um, so we are all at the beck and call sometimes of, you know, how fast integrations are, how fast, you know, we can get our development teams to do what we want. And a fascinating amount of talent and development on our, on our, in our company. But that being said, it's, it's got its curve, right? It takes its time to get stuff done. Sure. So my new thing is 111 days. So I recently learned Amazon Prime Now, the one-hour delivery, 111 days from concept to shipping products to a customer in an hour, which frankly to me sounds amazing because working with a lot of big companies, it's just yeah. hard to get stuff done. So I'm giving you 111 days, days for my, my personally... <laughs> I think we probably used 120 already <laughs> or more. Yeah. Fair enough. But let it, let's do change topics to the future if I jump in my time machine and I go forward 18 months, two years, can you give us a, a hint for how engagement with Under Armour might be different or how you'd like it to be different? If- yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> like right now we chase traffic, right? And we keep thinking about more traffic, more traffic to dot com, more traffic, you know, these communities could be traffic, right? And I just want to fast forward 18 months and figure out, like, we got to stop chasing traffic. They're not just a traffic pool. And figure out, like, what are purpose-built programs for these communities, which are purposeful for the brand, purposeful for the athlete, and purposeful for the business. Because I think we can do a lot of right things with brand and consumer. One thing KP says often, and I totally agree, that losing money can be a culture. We're not in the business to lose money. We're not in the business to acquire acquire these apps to lose money. 
we got to figure out how we make money and we're going to make the money the right way. So I want to figure out, and I think like our team is, is perfectly centered as one stakeholders in solving that problem. So I'm hoping in 18 months I can come back on this show or somewhere else and say, I look back 18 months, we had this amazing asset and look what we did with this in terms of building profitability through, through this, uh, you know, community. Um, Obviously, there's a swirl of ideas and swirl of executions going on, but like, like that's what I'd love to see. Uh, fast forward 18 months, uh, and I want to see like how these athlete assets who are just on stage become part and parcel of activation within these communities and part of these programs because they're so powerful. I mean, we, you know, I when I was at Razorfish, I'm like, whatever, sporting assets. It's <laughs> just for a magazine. I mean, it's amazing what sporting assets do for a brand. Uh, obviously, you know, they've been extremely successful like Steph Curry, sure. but uh, those guys, man, like those guys are really rock stars when you talk about brand activation. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of I would I was hoping. And then, you know, I'm in the connected fitness space. Obviously, we'll we'll do more stuff and we'll f- learn more stuff and we'll film a little bit more, uh, but hopefully get on the other side of the fence just to figure out, like, how do we keep growing this community and serving them in the right purpose way? Very cool. I'm imagining in 18 months, one of the things that'll help you is Steph Curry will probably be averaging like 300 points a game by then. So yeah, it seems yeah. like every time you think he can't get more ridiculous, he does something He's insane. more ridiculous. That's, I mean, 400 three-pointers in a season is, season is not a joke. I, I'm picturing you and I being old men, like <laughs> trying to explain to our children like yeah. what that was like when, when uh, that was actually happening. When Steph Curry was around, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And for the record, thanks for saying in 18 months, the Jason and Scott show will still be here. I'm pretty, <laughs> I hope it is too, but I extra hope that by in 18 months from now, I should have finally gotten Scott to start carrying his own weight. So I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping that happens as well. Last question, Sid. Normally I would say take off your brand hat for a second. I'm not going to say that to you because you're wearing almost 100% Under Armour and I don't need you to get naked here in the studio. But Under Armour aside, there's a ton of, well, I'll call them shiny objects, like new trends. And you know, here at Shop Talk, there's, there's a session about every one of them, right? You name it. Chat, commerce, buy buttons, VR, AR. Is there any of those things that you're particularly bullish about or that you think are a big part of the future and like what? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I've um, I've been saying that in a couple of conferences and I say that loudly in halls. Like, I'm really bullish about IoT. Um, and being in the retail sector, you know, nobody has taken on itself to say, we're going to be an IoT ambassador. So like, I'm hoping to be an IoT ambassador for retail because it's so focused on manufacturing. It's so focused on consumer electronics. Uh, but in the retail side, like it's still a uncharted territory. Uh, I'm extremely, like I, I say, like IoT is like the brains of a store meeting with the brains of a person or a consumer. And when that sort of collides, it's going to be only fascinating things. And I'm I'm sort of waiting for that to happen. Yeah, I'm certainly bullish about it as well. To me, it's one of the interesting ones. There's some of these things that are super hyped and hear people talking about them all the time. And certainly IoT has its fair share of hype, depending on what what, uh, halls you walk in. If you go to Cisco, of course, it's very hyped. But in general, to me, IoT feels like it's one of those things that's going to sneak up on us a little bit. It's harder to do than you might imagine, but I try to think about what our life was like five years ago. And one crazy thing, 
mobile store locators barely existed five years ago, and you certainly didn't. Google did not have store hours and things like that, and nobody was asking for it, right? Like nobody was saying, like, "Hey, this is a huge pain point." But now we just all take for granted that, of course, I can find out if my local Starbucks is open special hours on Christmas, and we just take for granted that we would always be able to know where the nearest store is and their hours and things. And IoT feels like one of those things to me, that it's not necessarily going to be one thing and, hey, one killer app, and now suddenly it's popular, but you and I are going to wake up, I don't know what the time horizon is, three years from now, and all of these things are going to be talking to each other and creating all this interesting new data that we're going to be able to leverage for that that relevancy and context-sensitive and I think it's going to be a ton of devices that right now would sound absurd to be to be instrumented, right? Like yeah. it's going to be our water bottles. It's going to be everything. Yeah, and it'll be up to people like you and me to make sense of it because IoT is ultimately just a capability, right? Like what you do with it is what you unlock with it is what makes it amazing. And if if I think that's where I'm kind of struggling with the retail space is that there's not enough manpower and, and share of mind going in terms of unlocking the potential of what it can be. So all these product and tech companies who are in the IoT space are going around saying, oh, we have a platform. Why don't you guys look at it? But they're not letting the retailers imagine. Like somebody needs to be an imagineer first here before we say, we're going to invest in a platform for IoT. And I think that's the gap I feel right now on the retail side. Like, I don't think there's an Imagineer on IoT. No, I, I absolutely think that's true. Like, a lot of the use cases that the technologists come up with are totally silly. And to your point, they just don't solve problems that real retailers and brands have. And so so we need to get the tech in the hands of the the business owners that are trying to solve real problems. Well, Sid, uh, we have burned through our time, so that's all the time we have for this this episode. But uh, it's been awesome to catch up with you, and I appreciate all the good insights. I feel like our go-forward plan is I'm going to sell you a really expensive strategy for IoT, and then you're just going to see my ass and elbows as I run away, and you have to execute all of it. So I'm That sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. I'm sure anything you do, Jason, will have uh, some value. So I, I, I'll count on that. <laughs> the operative word being some, right? Some very, <laughs> very relative word. I appreciate it, Sid. Cool. If you enjoyed this episode, I want to remind everyone that we now have a Facebook page, so you're welcome to go and engage there and share your feedback on the show. Of course, we always appreciate your reviews on iTunes. And with that, we are wishing you happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 